Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as the necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA journalist Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Jeff Fisher. He's an attorney who has argued numerous U.S. Supreme Court cases and is also a Stanford Law School professor, where he directs its Supreme Court litigation clinic. And he's a special counsel at O'Melveny and Myers. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, you had the unique experience of being one of the first lawyers who appears in the U.S. Supreme Court to do telephone oral arguments, first in May, and then you had uh, two more this past month in November. What was that like? It's been a challenging and interesting experience. Obviously, we're happy that the court has found a way to continue its business, but it's not the same as being inside the courtroom. And what's funny is even over the course of my three arguments now over the phone, I have come more and more to realize what a different setting it is. Uh, And I've kind of traveled a path from the first time I did it in May, where I was trying really to just sort of replicate what I would do in the courtroom over the phone. And And by the time I've done these more recent ones, I've realized they're actually, it's a different format that requires some different forms of preparation and and reactions to the court uh, when you're in the moment. So it's it's been an interesting challenge. Tell me about what you were thinking of when you thought you wanted to try to replicate what you did in the courtroom over the phone. And that would have been the Our Lady of Guadalupe case, right? Correct. Yeah. So that was the one I argued in May, and that was one of the court's first phone arguments. So I think Part of what I was trying to do there, I mean, so just to give you a concrete example, in that one, I put a podium in the conference room I used in Stanford, and I stood at a podium (laughs) and talked, and I just wanted to feel like as much like I was in the courtroom as possible to be in that moment. But my later ones, I've sat at the table and, um, and, and had notes in front of me in a way that I would never do standing at a podium. So that's just one little concrete way where I've changed what I've done, um, kind of realizing the different format. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but more fundamentally, I think the biggest difference between the two formats is uh, is the court's one-by-one questioning as compared to the more free-flowing uh, conversation that happens inside the courtroom. And I think that requires kind of different preparation and different handling of the questions. So for these arguments, where did you take the call? Did you go to the law school? Did you do it from home? Did you go to a hotel? What did you do? Uh, I've done all three from the same room at Stanford Law School that has a sort of sophisticated AV system uh, and a door that locks. (laughs) Uh, So so that's been nice that I've had that available to me. Okay. And... Do they just call you on the phone line or is this a software that the court uses for this? I'm not precisely sure what goes on on the court's end. Uh, you know, on the lawyer end, you just go into the room and then they they phone you up about half an hour before the argument session starts. And then after a couple of sound checks and such, uh, you basically get patched into a conference call with the court um, at 10, 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, and then one by one, the lawyers are muted and unmuted from the court's end as their turn comes up. I am curious. So for the first time you did this in May, 
it sounds like there were cases the week before as well. Did you call some of the attorneys and say, hey, what was this like? I believe I talked to one lawyer. Uh, I certainly listened to those arguments uh, to get a feel for how they were going. It, you know, but but candidly, I was also so deep in my own substantive preparation that it was kind of a lot to balance and is concerned about, probably more concerned about the latter than the former. <laughs> <laughs> was this something that to approach it, you just had to kind of push out of your head? Because I would imagine it might be natural to think, well, what's going to happen? Do you think that maybe what you did instead was say, well, I've argued, what is it, 40 cases? Uh, yeah, about some 40. Okay. I can do this. I need just to go in and do this to the best of my ability and not worry about the technology, just because you need to be flexible for this too, right? Right. Right. Because it's not like it was before. Right. I mean, what's funny about it is the thing that I was most concerned about going in was not being able to see their faces or their body language. Because uh, so much of just human interaction <laughs> involves those kinds of things. And so, you know, I thought I've, I've always thought when I'm in the courtroom in, re, in traditional arguments that you pick up so much just from seeing whether they're leaning forward in their chair, whether they're leaning back, whether they're frowning, whether they're furrowing their brow, whatever it might be. And what's interesting is at least in my first two arguments, uh, Van Buren, the most recent one was a little bit different, but in the first two arguments, it wasn't, that didn't turn out to be as much of a uh, challenge or a disadvantage as I thought it would be. Um, but on the other hand, I had underestimated how much different it would be to have the one-by-one -one questioning as opposed to the traditional questioning. And from the lawyer's perspective, the thing that I found most challenging was that was that you only get you know a minute or two with each justice by the time they've asked their questions to give an answer. And then when the court moves on to the next person, there's no really good way to circle back to some earlier question or some topic that has been surfaced that you think may be pivotal. And so a lot of the argument gets eaten up with time with justices who may already agree with you uh, or who are asking you things that you don't think is going to really move the needle in the case. And you end up having far, far more limited time for the one or two or three questions or the one or two justices who matter the most. Well, I'm curious, could you, like say Thomas asked you a question and the time was up, and then um, another justice asked you a question. Could you say, and also, I'd like to go back for a moment to what Justice Thomas said earlier. Could you do that or would that be frowned on? Well, you know, as you know, that's very much what, what lawyers do in the ordinary um, courtroom setting. Uh -huh. uh, but I, I don't think there really is a way to do it under the current format. It feels to me like it would be extremely rude, you know, for Okay. Justice Gorsuch, for example, you know, he has his three or four minutes and I'm going to say, okay, Justice Gorsuch, instead of answering your question, let me go back to something Justice Thomas asked. It just seems like <laughs> really hard to, to, to do. Uh, so the one thing that I did do in my most recent argument is try to do a version of that because the Chief Justice at the end of lawyers' arguments has, has in this setting been saying to them, okay, I will give you a minute to wrap up. And what I decided to do in this last argument is instead of taking that literally as a, as a, as a wrap up, I decided to keep a notepad by the speaker and write down the one or two questions I got along the way that I didn't feel like I was able to give a full answer to. And I used that one minute at the end to come back to a couple of questions I'd been asked. 
Um, so that was the, that was one version of that, but it was the only, that's as far as I've felt comfortable going. And I haven't heard any other lawyers, you know, too explicitly pivot to other justices questions while they're on somebody else's clock. Okay. And I wanted to ask you about the back and forth because I've heard that there wasn't as much of it. When I listened to Van Buren, there did seem to be a little bit of it, uh, but maybe that's because it was the third case. Did you did you feel like there wasn't as much back and forth? Well, you do, because you said that earlier, and did you miss it? Because it seems like, for my work, it's like if I'm covering something, I've noticed with these Zoom calls, there's not as much back and forth. You know, the good side is is the meeting might be done in 30 minutes as opposed to like four hours. But the bad side is, is they're not saying, you know, really crazy, crazy quotes that I know are, oh, that's going to be a great, you know, that's going to get attention. Well, yeah, I, I don't think there's as much back and forth. And there certain is, certainly is not quite as much collective back and forth, where some one justice would ask a question, then somebody else comes in and says, oh, I've been wondering that too, or here's another version of that, and I have the same concern. And these things kind of build on themselves in the ordinary courtroom, and that's what's not happening very much in this current setting. So for, so I do miss that, if that's the other part of your question, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like oral argument is is your opportunity to draw them out and hear their concerns and answer their questions. So I've always approached argument with wanting to hear from them and wanting to have an exchange and wanting questions. I think it's less productive to just stand there and kind of repeat the arguments in my brief or, or even if they're not in my brief for me just to give a, a speech. Uh, so, you know, the justices have jumped in some, but just the ordinary thing of phone conversation, it's harder to jump in and harder to, again, it just goes back to not being able to see them. I think one thing that I've noticed is that I'll get a question and I'll say one or two sentences where, and if I were in the courtroom and I saw somebody kind of nod nod his head or nod her head, I would say, oh, okay, now, okay, I've gotten through and that's an answer, but you don't have that kind of, inter- you don't have that kind of feedback. So what happens is, is after the two sentences, I might say another third or a fourth sentence just to make sure I've given a full answer and I've gotten through because you don't really know without being able to see them. And so if you just think about that two sentences versus four sentences, that's just double the time to do the same thing you would ordinarily do in, ordinarily do in the courtroom. Do you have more cases up this term? I don't have any other arguments currently scheduled. Uh, I'm involved in some other cases that may turn out to be argued later, but you know we'll have to see. Do you have, after your experiences with the three, um, do you have any advice on how to, since you can't pick up on body language on the phone, do you have advice on just how to get a sense of how things are going through the phone when you can't see the justices? <laughs> I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, I found what was interesting, and I think I sort of, adverted to this earlier is that the first two arguments I did um, were ones that I'd say more traditionally, the justices landed more in their kind of traditional ideological places by and large on the argument. And the Van Buren case, when I did most recently, was a criminal case that had kind of cross-cutting themes and and ideological uh, components. Um, And so in that case, where it was much less clear where any given justice would be coming from, I found it much harder to, to, to track whether I was really getting through to particular justices or not. 
I don't know. I mean, may, maybe on the phone you could say, you know, does that answer your question? Or are you satisfied with that or something? Uh, and try and draw them out. I mean, there's always that there's always that feeling of decorum and who's in charge and it's not you. So uh, I don't know um, of any way to get a better feel for that, that I've, at least that I've come up with. Well, that issue of decorum and who's in charge, was that one reason why you initially stood at the podium? Because you wouldn't want to, I would, can imagine if you got caught up in the moment, it might be easy to lapse into your phone behavior. And I'm sure you're a very polite person on the phone as well, but it's different yeah. from oral arguments. Yeah. I don't know. It was funny. Like I, I wasn't necessarily planning on whether I would stand up or not. And I sat down for my first couple of moots in that case. But when the, when the morning came, I felt like, geez, I need to stand. It was kind of an odd compulsion. But just just because I wanted to feel, I guess part of it was a, a, an element of familiarity. It's like, if I'm going to be talking to the Supreme Court and arguing a case, like, this is how you do it. And I think I wanted to do it in, in the most familiar way. And, you know, I don't think it really matters whether you stand up or sit down, whatever somebody's going to be most comfortable with for one of these audio calls. But as I said, I do think that there are different things that you want maybe to accomplish with openings and closings and different different ways you might want to think about uh, answering questions in this setting. And I think those are things that, again, I'm just, I'm still learning. And, but I think those are very real. Well, it may be something like, I know for trial lawyers, they say sometimes they want to talk in sound bites so that their message will get out. Is it perhaps a little bit of that for the phone arguments? I don't know that it's sound bites anymore, at least certainly any more over the phone than it is in, in the courtroom. But again, I think the real challenge is that it's just a much less efficient form of communication uh, because you're not able to see the body language and, and, and the like, and you're going one by one. So I think, that, I think what you'd want to do as a lawyer is try to communicate as efficiently as possible. So maybe sound bites is on the right track, but just as, as efficiently as possible in terms of your answers and then find ways within that format to do, I think, what the effective lawyers do inside the courtroom, which is keep a steady theme going with your argument and circle back to, you know, particularly important questions uh, that are asked by, you know, potentially pivotal justices. And I think that's the challenge in this format that, again, I don't have all the answers, but I've just noticed mm -hmm. that that is much harder. Did you uh, wear a suit for your oral arguments? You know, I, I dressed uh, comfortably. Okay. So, you know, I, I didn't think I needed to um, wear any particular outfit to be uh, perfectly wrapped in attention and respectful of the moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to uh, talk a little bit about how, what it was like working with uh, your teams uh, during the pandemic. We'll be right back. As your firm looks to end the year on strong financial footing, consider trying LawPay. A proven and trusted solution, LawPay offers a simple, secure way to accept client payments from anywhere. Because LawPay understands unique compliance requirements placed on attorneys, the solution was developed to correctly separate earned and unearned fees and protect IOLTA accounts from third-party debiting. Visit LawPay.com ABA to learn more. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and you're listening to a special series of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which looks at how lawyers are dealing with professional and personal changes brought by the coronavirus. 
Joining me today is Jeff Fisher, co-director of the Stanford Law School Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, who in the past year has had three U.S. Supreme Court arguments on the phone. Jeff, I am curious, how did you work with your team differently since the pandemic started and how many people are usually on your team? Well, the second question, how many people are usually on my team, doesn't really have an answer. It really varies just depending on the case and the and, and, and this co-counseling arrangement and the rest. So, um, so just to give you examples in the Fulton case, you know, I had many, many very, very talented and invested lawyers on my side. Uh, and then we of course had a working arrangement to some degree with the city of Philadelphia that was also on our side and all of their legal team. And then other cases like Van Buren, it's just a, it's a smaller group where I have um, to co-counsel and, and then the students in my clinic uh, and, the, and the instructors in my clinic. So it varies. A couple of things that we've done differently with my teams, though. I mean, one is just starting with the moots. Again, you want the moots to prepare you for the argument. And at least my feeling is you want the moots to be as realistic as possible. So I've been doing moots over the phone uh, alone in a room, mm-hmm. you know, and many times in the very same room that I did the oral argument in, um, just to prepare myself and get used to that setting. Um, because it really is jarring to have, you know, to just, just, you feel like you're just getting going with somebody in a conversation. And then the person says, thank you, counsel, next justice. I mean, you have to get used to mm-hmm. that sort of weird, herky jerky feel of the arguments. And so my, my team has been, you know, sometimes they're mooters, sometimes they're uh, just observers that give me feedback afterwards, but helping me acclimate to that process in the moots. In the real argument, I'd be very curious to hear what other lawyers have done. And I've only talked to a few, um, but you do have this opportunity to, pro- you know, I suppose be interacting with other members of your team, even during the argument. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I, I thought about that and I, and, you know, of course, there's also this sort of public health <laughs> uh, component of, you know, how many people can be in a room and <laughs> together to do this in a safe way. But even even when you get past that, I just got nervous that 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 would be too distracting for me to be, you know, I could be on mute, just mute, just talking to people, um, you know, when the other side was 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 going on. I could oh. be texting or I could be who knows what I could yeah. be doing. And I, that, that's different. Yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, you, I don't know if anybody's been doing that. I bet you maybe some people have, but I just felt like that would be too distracting for me. And it's too important for me to listen to the justices and the lawyer on the other side um, before I go and kind of get into the flow of that argument and hear what they're saying and what's being surfaced. So, so I kind of wall, I kind of walled out everything the way I kind of really would have done in a courtroom. Um, but I, but, but it was something I thought about, and I wouldn't be surprised if some some lawyers have come to different uh, conclusions on. Well, could your team listen remotely in real time sure. when the oral arguments were being? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so I had, in, in, you know, in, in a couple of the arguments, I had one other person in the room with me, uh, just as kind of a fail safe, and then, um, but then at the same time, other, yeah, the other team members listening to the live stream. Okay. So in theory, they could have like texted you ideas or I guess if they were in the room or emailed you or exactly. written that was it the, like on a yellow legal pad. Yeah. That was, the, that was what we thought about, but I just decided not to go that direction. Um, I just decided to leave my phone off and I just thought that would be too distracting. Well, in, in during like in in person oral arguments, they're not at the table with you, correct? Oh, they they're would the be. Audience. No, it, it, oh, they table. would be at the table. Yeah, okay. you're allowed to have... 
uh, three other people at the table with you if you're the only lawyer on your side of the case. And if you're dividing argument, you can have one other person with you. Uh, so, so in a sense, it's actually a little bit my way of doing these oral, these phone arguments where it's a little bit more detached from my team uh, because normally I would have at least one person sitting next to me that we might pass a few notes back and forth. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know a way to do that without opening a can opener uh, to, as I said, potentially much more distracting. Yeah, yeah. What was it like? Because you're not traveling uh, from Palo Alto to Washington, D.C. Yeah. You get to stay home. <laughs> but still that process of getting ready to go and getting, you know, getting your hair cut and your suits ready and walking up the stairs, that's all part of the process. For sure. Right? No, that's a huge, that's been a really interesting set of things. I mean, and it goes even to like not even the day of argument because my kind of prep system that I have more or less fallen into, uh, you know, typically involves starting to prepare in California and then at some point flying to Washington, D.C. several days in advance and then maybe doing another mood or two in D.C. and getting uh, getting to kind of going through this routine. And, and, and I even joke to somebody that like the five hour plane ride, which typically would happen four or five days before an argument uh, where I would just sink into the material for like five uninterrupted hours. Sure, I didn't even realize what an important part of my preparation, the, 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 the airline travel was. Um, yeah, I can totally so, see what that's a process. Yeah, so it's like you're living yeah. your day-to-day life and that was kind of like a mental trigger that like, okay, now we're really getting close and getting serious and I can deep myself into it. So I had to figure out ways with no travel to replicate those things. Now, obviously, a bunch of lawyers in Washington, D.C. who are arguing in front of the court all the time are probably laughing at me right now because they've been <laughs> able to do that, you know, in their own lives. But well, um, they but it, have their processes. too. Yeah. Like yeah. But I mean, it's I mean, for all of us, it's been a system disruptor. And so um, so, yeah. And so and then on the day of the argument, it's been interesting. Uh, for starters, you know, the court wants you on the phone at 930 ET, which is uh, which is 6:30 Pacific time. Uh, so getting mm-hmm. up in the fives and going to going to the conference room in the dark um, has been kind of a weird thing. And then it is weird uh, also at the back end, like when you finish the argument. And I just experienced this again last last week, and it's just funny. It's like you finish this, you you finish a Supreme Court argument, you know, and then just walk out, and I'm immediately on Stanford campus, you know, in California. <laughs> it's just kind of a, a jolt. You know, in some ways, that's really wonderful because uh, I love where I work and live, um, but it's weird. <laughs> Normally, when you finish oral argument, would you and the team go out for a meal or something? Yeah, that's the typical thing is we would all meet on the front steps afterwards and chat for a minute and go share a meal together and kind of decompress and share I usually at those meals, I'm usually more interested in listening to other people. I've kind of uh, at that oh, point, sure. I'm sure exhausted. Kind of, yeah, spent myself, but I'm always interested to hear, you know, what the impressions were of my co-counsel or a client or other people there, and 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 obviously answer any questions that those people would have just about what transpired. But so we we we've we've done that over Zoom uh, in my cases. So when when, oh, okay, when, we, nice. when when we finish with the court, uh, we haven't done the meal, but we've done the conversations. We yeah. finished with the court and then taken five or 10 minutes and then hopped onto a Zoom room together uh, and just tried to do that same thing. Do you know if anyone who's argued cases on the phone, has anyone been brave enough to do it from home? Have you heard of anyone who tried it from home? Because that's. Well, I feel like uh, I feel like Lisa Blatt um, did it from her dining room or something like that. The oh, very wow. first argument. Okay. I mean, the, the Washington Post ran a story 
about Lisa because she was going to be the first lawyer doing this. Um, And I believe she did it from home. You know, this was early in the pandemic where, you know, even leaving your house in any way was obviously, you know, kind of scary. So um, that's the one that comes to mind. Um, But would bet maybe there are others. I don't know. I, I have... I have two kids at home doing school and everything, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, well, your it. wife's a professor too. But, yeah, right? for those reasons and others, I was I was uh, I thought it would be safer to get somewhere else. <laughs> I, I understand completely. I think many of us would be happy to go somewhere else at some points. Um, <laughs> let's let's shift gears a tiny bit. I mean, we're still talking about your Supreme Court work, but I am curious with your students, what's the process like of teaching them to write remotely? And <laughs> make oral arguments? Uh, So the writing works pretty well. Uh, You know, obviously all of us would rather be in the classroom and there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's very meaningful things that are lost when you're having to do it over Zoom. On the other hand, we're lucky in our clinic uh, at Stanford that, um, that appellate work and brief writing translates, I think, pretty well to Zoom by comparison mm-hmm. to most forms of legal practice. Um, so what, what we do in our ordinary clinic is that as the students do their drafting, uh, we periodically meet in conference rooms at the law school and put the drafts up on a screen and, and mm-hmm. then work through them together and sometimes edit together in real time. And that translates pretty well to Zoom because we can do a, sh- a screen share and have our faces on the side and then do a screen share of the brief and somebody has control of the keyboard. And so we do pretty much the same thing over Zoom in the clinic, which is um, which is just edit the brief together and talk about what, well, why, is this, why is this argument before the other argument or why is this citation the one we want to use and all the everything in between over Zoom and doing the screen share format. So it works, you know, again, reasonably well. And how about oral arguments? You mean the preparing or the doing or? Doing. Do you teach that as well? Well, um, we, you know, the students obviously cannot do the arguments in our cases, uh, which makes us different than most law clinics uh, uh, at Stanford and other places. So so the oral argument teaching is really through the, the preparation for uh, the cases like we've been talking about, uh, where the students are. Uh, and so what we would do with our students is they're participating. All the students in the clinic would watch the watch the uh, moot over Zoom. And then when we have the conversation afterwards about you know feedback and suggestions and such and strategic conversation, the students participate in that. And so again, it's kind of similar to what they would normally do, which is you know, the students are essentially particularly the ones working on the case, they're essentially co- just co-counsel on the case. Okay. And I'm curious, you know, after your oral arguments wrapped up and you chatted with your team about how things went, were there things that you learned from some of your students or maybe some of the young lawyers about the process? Because, you know, people under 30 have spent so much more time <laughs> online in their lives than we have. I know that that's definitely true. You know, I, I think that um, I'm trying to think of if, if in terms of the stuff we've been talking about, if I picked up anything particular from the students and nothing, nothing jumps to mind for me. But certainly for every argument I do, uh, the students are, you know, pivotal in, in all the substantive preparation and all the all, all the all the answering. And in some ways, I, I, I often think of our students as really good proxies for the Supreme Court justices clerks. Um, and in fact, mm-hmm. you know, many, some of them are lucky enough to be, become 
clerks a few years sure. later. Um, and so all the way through our work and preparation, you know, if I hear a student saying, look, I don't really understand this or this isn't working for me and here's why. One reason I take that really seriously is I think, you know, maybe the law clerks will have the same issue. You know, it was particularly fun to work with the students most recently in the Van Buren case, though, which kind of brings together your question uh, about the Zoom format in general and then their expertise about online activity in particular, because that was actually the center mm -hmm. of Van Buren was, you know, whether certain forms of computer use ought to be criminalized and and how and how people use the Internet and uh, yeah. their iPhones on a daily yeah. basis. So uh, uh -huh. you know, that took stocking to a whole new level. That was, yes. <laughs> that was, that was really fun and interesting to work with the students uh, and get their perspectives on all those questions. And they were some credit. Oh, I would imagine. Do you want to chat about that? Cause I think that's the, it's, it's, it's interesting case. Um, essentially it was a police officer who was accused of searching on people's license plates. Right. And it, well, do you want to go ahead and just tell a little bit about, I think it was a very interesting case. Well, Sure. Um, right. So there's a statute called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which which everybody agrees prohibits computer hacking. Um, but the question in this case was whether it goes further to prevent uh, misuse or uh, you know uh, misappropriation of information from computers. Uh, and so the government um, put forth a theory that would say that even if you're authorized to access information on a computer, if you do it for an improper purpose. Uh, or in violation of the terms of service of that website, you, you know, you're at least potentially held liable under the CFAA. And so, you know, one thing any lawyer would do in any case is say, okay, the rule the other side is propounding uh, sounds pretty broad. Let's think about what it would sweep in. And so that's where the students really came in uh, to say, gee whiz, you know, uh, we use our, we use, you know, we do, we use online dating profiles to do, uh, to, to find potential dates and the terms of service of those uh, websites, uh, you know, might have some rules that we're breaking along the way. And, and you know, we, we talked about how our, our class syllabus tells them in writing, you know, you, you can use the internet during class sessions for class purposes, but not for per personal reasons. And, you know, not, not, not to not to suggest that any of my students might have committed federal crimes during the fall, but uh, but it's possible, I think, that during some of our lectures or conversations, you know, a student went on Amazon.com or something. Uh, and, so, and so just spinning all those things out, which is partly kind of, you know, I guess it's fun, but it's serious work. And, and, sure. and, and when you have these cases that involve uh, technology and other sort of emerging trends in society about culture and use of uh, information. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, I just found it so important and so helpful to have students along with me, uh, bringing their perspective and insights to those questions. So everyone is hoping that these vaccines will be available soon for many people and things will get back to normal in the next year. But do you see any uh, cases getting teed up for the U.S. Supreme Court that are COVID related? So I, I'm not the most rigorous follower of everything percolating up, percolating up to the court. Uh -huh. uh, but I don't think I know of anything uh, that is percolating up to the court in a way that would trigger an oral argument, if that's what you're asking. I mean, obviously, yeah. we've had this. If there's issues that have come right, up. Right, we've had the things up. about, you know, places of worship and, 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 and right. other things respected right. to stay-at-home type orders, which, you know, seem to be coming at us again now. 
uh, in light of the uh, the renewed surge of cases. So I certainly think you'll see stuff coming up on what we call the shadow docket or the you know the motions and applications docket. Whether any of those things will bloom into um, you know a full plenary review and oral argument, uh, I don't know. There's not a, there's not a particular case I'm aware of right now. I'd put my finger on, but. But you never know. I mean, I think one thing that's been interesting and people have written on, I've seen some people write online about this, is that, you know, the court's order is just to go back to the, uh, you know, whether churches uh, can hold services, particularly indoors. You know, those those opinions have been quite consequential. Those orders, I guess, is what they are. Uh, and so, you know, one thing I wonder is whether the court at some point will say to itself, well, geez, even though these are coming up on the shadow docket, you know, we're essentially creating very important precedent or maybe just deciding really important issues that, you know, ultimately have to do with life and death, potentially. So we ought to give it full dress treatment. And, you know, there's nothing stopping the court, I don't think, from having oral argument and even even the uh, shadow docket setting. So it will be interesting over the winter to wait, to see what happens. Okay. Well, Jeff, that's everything I wanted to ask you today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. It was really fun. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.